Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. As usual, what I like to do with the cold open is I like to do something that sort of relates in some way of six degrees of separation to my guest or the world that they're in or whatever is in my guest today. I'm very excited about who we're going to talk to in just a little bit is Jeff Apeloff, who's an amazing, amazing reality uh producer and creator and i've only had only one other person in this world on the show brant pinnavidic uh who's the president of iWorks now and i i find this world very fascinating and i'm sure you guys too seeing that the number one show on television is about several men who look like they're ex-red Sox players from the world championship duck dynasty so anyway my story is it starts off this way. Um, one of the things when I was representing Dane Cook, and I, I worked with him for about 17 years, that was really important, and and one of his goals that was very elusive, and it was a very elusive goal for, frankly, I think every comedian, was to figure out a way how we could get him on a finale of American Idol because if you get on a finale of American Idol, I'm you're in front of probably like 30 million people. And if you can make your mark, it's groundbreaking, not just on how you look, your style, your content, what you decide to do. It's just a unique stage that can, can launch things even bigger than what they already are. And... 
I remember Dane's uh, agent at the time was a guy named Steve Smook from CAA, Creative Artist Agency. And Steve is a guy and was a guy who is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most underrated but extraordinary agents out there in the sense that he works in all areas of the business. He has worked for clients in film. He's worked for clients in scripted television. He's worked with comedians. He's worked with actors. And he always is, seems to be in a place where he can uh, get things done in an unusual and unique way that you want to get done. And I, I worked with him on several deals, not only with Dane, but several other clients. And I was always uh, really, really happy with the working relationship and always really uh, a lot of fun and uh, just a, a unique guy to see how he works and his relationships. A guy who, you know, has pissed a lot of people off in the business, but somehow, some way, even after he really upset somebody, he would figure out a way to create a better relationship. So he represented, I believe, Simon Fuller from um, American Idol. And, uh, and he had a little bit of an in there. And we were able to get the idea into the right people and figure out uh, how to get Dane Cook on. And they agreed to put him on. If you could figure out some kind of a unique, funny angle or tribute to uh, get something done there. Um, and so he got the gig. So he says to me, uh, Barry, this is very exciting. Uh, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do. I said, I have an idea. Why don't I put together a like think tank of writers for just one two-hour period in a conference room, and you can come in, and I'll tell everybody in advance, and they can pitch you an idea of what to do. And I might preface, this story is unique in the sense that it has a lot of different parts to it of the things in the business that or any business if you're in that you can look at and how things can go a certain way and how they can't and adversity and what it takes to move to the next level and what can happen when you get to the next level and all sort of different things having to do with relationships. So I put together this room of people and I, I, I wanted to put 10 people in the room with Dane and I had nine people that I put in there who were young writers or special people that I knew throughout the business, not necessarily my clients at all. And two weeks beforehand, I had met with this guy who was very persistent, who was probably, you know, closer to 40 than he was 30. And he was kind of a unique-looking guy, and he was a guy who, when I met with him after he was so persistent, there was something about him that was special, but he he was kind of like a little socially awkward in the me meeting, a little bit, just didn't have the oomph. But I knew there was something about him, but I just couldn't figure out what it was. And I just, I, I didn't pull the trigger. And it was getting towards uh, when this meeting was, and I still only had nine people. And so I decided, you know what, why don't I just have that guy come in again? Because he kept emailing me and kept calling me. Can I come in? Can I see you again? Whatever. 
and I had him come in again. And I just decided, you know, what the hell, you know, my instincts tell me this guy is going to make his mark. But in the room, for some reason, my instincts aren't showing me that. So I said, listen, if you're not busy, I'd love you to come into the stink tank with, with Dane Cook. And the comedian's name uh, is a very funny comedian who has since done The Tonight Show and, and just did the Arsidio Hall show, a guy named J. Chris Newberg, who is a stand-up, has great material, but also uses a guitar to kind of enhance the jokes, uh, and really an interesting character. So we uh, have the seats at the head of the table, and... Dane and I are meeting and talking, and um, as usual, what no artist knows the fate of the room or how it's going to be. But there happen to be three chairs at the around that part of the table. Everybody had taken their chair. I guess they knew I was sitting in a certain place, so somebody was sitting next to me. I guess my bag was there. But it wasn't clear where Dane was, but he was going to be right at the top. And that chair next to him was empty. Because presumably, because the comedians at the time were intimidated and, they, and the writers and they didn't know what they were going to do or what, the, so they just wanted to sort of step back. But this kid, J. Chris Newberg, he sits right down in that chair, right next to Dane Cook. And he's got his guitar on the floor. And as usual, when you're in a room, just to digress a second, you don't know which way you're going to go, how things are going to be pitched, but you naturally assume if you're going to be next to the guy, chances are you might be first. When Jay Moore got his first job on Saturday Night Live, his first table read was, it wasn't a table read, it was a pitch meeting, the first meeting where everybody's around the table at SNL. And Jay decided, he says, look, you know, if I sit on this side right next to Lorne and the guest or whatever, whoever it was on the other side, he, he picked a place on the other side of Lorne and he said, I want to be right next to Lorne because I know I got the best idea in the world, which was Barney versus Barkley, which happened to be the cold open that actually was on SNL his first year, his first show. It was Barkley doing one-on-one -on -one with Barney and beating the crap out of him. Anyway, so Jay sat next to Lorne hoping that he could be the first guy to get picked. Unbelievably, Lorne went the other way. So 50 people pitched their ideas before Jay, and everybody that pitched, there was this anxiety. God, are they going to come up with it? Are they going to come up with my idea or whatever? Until finally he came along, pitched his idea, and it got on. So similarly, Jay Newberg, Jay Chris Newberg, sat in that chair. He was confident, yet when you looked at him, you just weren't sure what to think. And all these other seasoned writers who'd written on all these different things written for comedians were there. And so sure enough, Dane Cook says, well, let's start with you. And Newberg picks up the guitar and he says, you know, I was thinking about things last night. A great idea might be that um, we do a little roast of Simon. And, you know, I wrote a little ditty about um, what it would be like. And he picks up his guitar and he says, this song is called Simon Says. 
and he starts singing this song with these incredible jokes and stopping the guitar rift and all these roast jokes. And then he finished off with the chorus and he said, everybody, and people in the room, the writers in the room were singing along the chorus. <laughs> and he finished, he, and he put down his guitar and everyone in the room applauded, like, 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 like it gave him an ovation in this conference room. And you, after he finished and put down the car, the guitar, Dane was like, wow, that's pretty impressive for writing last night. He's like, he's like thank you. And I realized the look on all the writers' faces in the room was like, holy shit, I got nothing. I got nothing that is going to compare to that. I can't follow that. I'm fucked. And the next guy that he called, hey, what do you got? He's like, um... Listen, could you just go to the next guy? <laughs> and went to the next guy. Uh, listen, I just, uh, I'm thinking about a few things. You go to the next guy. And so it was like back and forth, and nothing that they came up with was anything remotely positive for that thing. And Newberg got the gig writing this song for Dane Cook. And so we went, uh, he recorded it, wrote a few things, pitched it to American Idol. They loved it. They said, this is great. Love it. Fantastic. And so Newberg gets his break, starts forming a relationship with Dane Cook, a young guy who came from nowhere with all these established writers. Dane Cook gets his break on the biggest show in reality television to the first comedian that I know of ever to be able to do a set on a finale of American Idol, which was a first, and he loved firsts. Those were his goals. And everything is fantastic and exciting. And then we get to the American Idol live taping, and I get there a little bit early. And one of the things that I, I was amazed about is that there was a rehearsal during the day, and Ryan Seacrest was nowhere to be found. Here is the largest, biggest host in network television. It's a live show, and somebody who's like a male model is running through his lines. I'm like, how is it possible that this guy is, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, I keep going back and forth, not there. I go back to the trailer, knock on the trailer door, the producers of American Idol come in, and they say, Dane, um, I don't think we're, uh, we're going to be able to do this uh, this." Uh, show it was early it was very early i don't think we're going to be able to do this uh i don't think it's going to happen and we, it's got to happen you made a commitment so steve and i were fighting back and forth throughout the rehearsals with the producers you gotta have him on you can't take it away from him. you committed you cannot do this to him and they're like, we're sorry, it's just not going to work out. So all through the day, we're fighting with them, fighting back and forth. What is it? Oh, it's a time issue. We don't think we can do the time, whatever it is. I'm, listen, you have to make this happen. So Steve and I were, you know, part of being a manager and being an agent is turning no's into yeses. Here is Dane's biggest break. He's gone to a stylist. He has a whole outfit he's picked out. He's worked for hours and hours and hours on this thing. He's gone into rehearsals with the band, and he's got his two minutes and 15 seconds or whatever. So then they come back in, and they say, listen, uh, can you do it in a minute? 
and he's in the trailer. He's like saying, you know, he said, give me a, give me, give me 15 minutes. We're working on it with Newberg. He tries double time. Now, for those of you not in music, which I wasn't, double time just means you're doing it twice as fast, but you're doing all the, all the words the same way. It's just twice as fast. They bring in the American Idol producers. They show it to them. They close the trailer door. Listen, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't like it that way. Whatever. Listen, what if we just do a one-and-a-half-minute version or whatever? We'll figure it out. We'll edit something. We'll do it. We went back in the trailer. We're working on it. He does that version, and they say, okay. And so we fought for it. We got on. It wasn't exactly what he wanted, but it was a moment that he would have, and whether it was less time or not, it would be a big break and 30 million people would be watching it. So then the American Idol producers informed us that they came up with the brilliant idea. Listen, uh, guys, what's going to happen at the very end of the song, we're going to bring out all the rejects that Simon has shit on throughout the years or the year, and we're going to bring them out and clap and applaud, and there's going to be three or four on either side of you, Dane, when you finish. And I'm like, well, this this doesn't seem like a good idea. And he was, and the producers basically yelled at me. They said, "Listen, you know, basically, listen, motherfucker, you're lucky he's on the show. Uh, we we almost took him off the show. This is what it is." And it just to me, the variables again, no matter how big you are as an artist, if you're taking a gig with somebody else, you lose control. You don't have the control because at any moment, anything can happen, especially in reality television. And here this guy had worked so hard and gotten it together. We got the gig and then lost it, got it, lost it, fought to get it, and now there's another variable that he has to worry about. But Newberg is working with him, helping him, giving him confidence, and really special. And Dane starts and gets introduced on stage and starts, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's slow, it's paced, it's beautiful, it's getting big laughs. Simon is laughing, Randy's laughing, you know, Ellen, all the people are laughing, it's going over well. And at the end of his final chorus, as he's trying to finish off the final chorus and he's playing guitar, you see uh, three or four of these uh, rejects from American Idol coming over and applauding and slapping their hands and dancing over the head as they come on either side of him. And then he starts with his final chorus. And one of those guys who was rejected by Simon, Ian Bernardo, rips the mic out of the mic stand, which they hadn't secured or thought of, and started saying, Simon, you're shit. I'm better than you, whatever. And it's a live show. And Dane is just standing there in the background, strumming the guitar with this look on his face like, this motherfucker took my moment away from me. I had it all going on. I worked so hard, and it's gone. And as in live television, they zoomed out, turned to a different sidewall of a logo, faded out, and there was no outro of Dane Cook. There was no mention of it again. And an opportunity, which seemingly was the greatest opportunity in the world, was tainted 
and lost for an artist that really wanted something special to boost his career. And on the flip side, though, the young artist, J. Chris Newberg, it was a defining moment in his career. He had shown that he could prove that he could be a great writer. He could prove that he could create holy shit moments. He proved that he could create original content. And he made Dane feel safe. And ultimately, because of that, Dane booked him on his multi-city arena tour as his opening act and then brought him on at the end of every show to orchestrate the encore. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the end! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning nose into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, My guest today uh, needs an introduction. The reason why he's here is because I feel like I don't have enough reality uh, covered in the show, and um, I wanted him specifically because, first of all, he's an amazing man. I I love him as a person. He's got a great energy, but he also started off as a young stand-up comedian and worked his way up through the ranks as a comedian, uh, working with such comedians as Larry the Cable Guy, Bobby Slayton, Jackie Mason, the, the late Richard Jenny and Mitch Hedberg, uh, Bob Goldthwaite, and the late Bill Hicks. He's worked with a lot of uh, dead people, basically. <laughs> and uh, and then he moved on to work on a tour that was basically Sam Kinison's Outlaws of Comedy. Basically, the theme here is he's a guy who's worked with dead people. <laughs> Um, and he worked in these live gigs that were like literally huge gigs all over the country. And, um, 
He was doing really, really well in that business, but then he decided, hey, you know, I'm going to go in and do something else. You know, I'm going to produce content for these entertainment venues, which he did, and he did very successfully. And then he decided, you know what, let me try to create unscripted television. And that he did with the first show called Secret Admirer, which was uh, signed by Gay Rosenthal Productions and developed through NBC. And then he created and produced an unscripted uh, dramatic comedy series, a, a dramedy entitled Face of the Family, which was on Lifetime uh, in uh, 2006. And then the next year he founded his own company, Aploff Entertainment. And that year he created the Mother Load and executive produced the musical reality comedy competition show Don't Forget the Lyrics, which... Uh, Basically, it was a huge hit on Fox and then got sold in syndication in like, I think, like close to 100 or 95 percent of the country. And literally the guy now is fucking models on piles of cash. Uh, but uh, he's an amazing man. He just was recently commissioned by Fremantle to executive produce the UK smash hit Take Me Out for Fox, which George Lopez hosts. And we're going to talk a lot about the business, his trajectory, and success. Please welcome my guest today, very excited, Jeff Aploff. Thank you very much, Barry. I, I'm glad I got time away from the hookers and the models <laughs> and the pile of cash to be able to talk to you for a few minutes. I am glad. Because <laughs> when people look at me, they go, man, that's a guy banging <laughs> girls on piles of cash right there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, they, they, we have something in common. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, they don't look at me that way either, but uh, anyway. Uh, so I want to start at the beginning, because I always like to start at the beginning. Sure. Your birth. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I want to start off on is like everybody who's doing anything in the world that they're doing for a profession, there's a, there's a, there's a week or a day or so before they come up with the brilliant idea to do what they're doing, and then all of a sudden something happens that makes them say, you know what, I, this is what I want to do. So let's start with the stand-up comedy, which I believe you started in 1990. Take me through like a month beforehand. What are you doing? What happened to make you want to do comedy? So I was building restaurants. I had built uh, Jewish gourmet delis and bagel places in Florida. I built over 30 stores. I had done some consulting gigs. I had done a lot of different stuff. My dad was in the delicatessen business. His father was in the provisions business. So that's really what it was. And my dad only wanted me to be in the deli business. That was like his dream for me to open a store and do it nice and quiet. And it was really, you know, that was his So dad. you're not a Jew is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you get the chubby Jew on the the pile of cash with the beautiful girls you see where we're going right. right so so what had happened was i had always been a guy that's you know i'm me i'm the way that i am and you're the you know i joke around and i have fun so i had friends of mine that go hey we went to this open mic contest at a place called haggerty's comedy club in boca raton florida and you really you should go up and just do it you you really got to go because so, you were always funny with the people when always doing... joking around and doing my thing and busting balls and just having fun and just uh, i was always a funny guy right so you know life of the party and all that stuff and and i had several different people say hey you should really try the comedy thing so 
I went one night to Haggerty's and I kind of watched this open mic night and it was a bunch of different guys doing different things and I said, okay, I'll try it. So that open mic night was a $100 grand prize. For those of you who don't know, because it's possible that you don't know what an open mic night is, uh, uh, there are these nights in comedy clubs, but sometimes, you know, when I was doing comedy, the ground round at the time was popular and you go on a Monday night and there'd be musical acts, there'd be comedians and there'd be a prize. Sometimes there wasn't a prize, but basically you'd have a professional host who hosted who probably was getting paid a hundred dollars or $50 and then all the other acts were free. So they would get the free entertainment and then there'd be bad acts and they're good acts, but It'd be a way for people to start and do things in the comedy scene, as well as the music scene a little bit in some some places. There are these open mic nights where people are allowed to go on and do between three and five minutes and and build their act, and that's what you're talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about, and I got five minutes, and in fact, my first night that I ever went up, I met another guy that was there for one of his first nights, which was Mitch Hedberg, right? And all these guys, and it was Jimmy Schubert hosting, who, you know, another another great great comedian. So guys that are just really long-term comics and that, you know, you make these lifelong friendships with. But at the time, I knew nobody, so I went in, I watched the first week, I just wanted to see what it was. They gave a $100 grand prize. I went up, and all I did was tell jokes the very first time that I went up. I told, you told old, jokes, jo- old jokes. Just joke jokes, right? Which for those of you listening, if you're uh, a comedian and you were going to go on stage and do old jokes, you'll never get anywhere in the business because the comics will basically just run you out of town. It's like you have to be in a situation where you create your own original material. Uh, in music, listen, you know, sometimes you can go on an open mic night and do one song that's an original and you can cover something and you could be considered a genius if you sing a Janis Joplin song the right way. If you go on as a comedian and you do David Tell's jokes and do them perfectly the way he did, you know, you're going to be in deep shit. Which I didn't know, okay? And so I went up, I did joke jokes the first time. The second time I went up, I did a couple of other comedians' jokes, and they took me on the side and said, hey, dude, this is not the way you do it. You have to write material if you're going to come up here. This is not the way to be. And I was like, okay, got it. So I went home, and I wrote. And I wanted to just win this 100 bucks. Took me five weeks. Now did Hedberg win or Schubert win that? Uh, that well, Schubert was the host. So oh, he, he was the host. So he couldn't oh, God, win, okay, and yeah. Hedberg did not win. Got it. Um, and I don't even remember to be honest with you. A guy named David Stebbins. I don't know if you ever heard of David, but he does a bunch of AA shows and things like that in Florida. He's still in Florida. My first um, open mic yeah. night was at the Comic Strip in Fort Lauderdale. And, Mitchell Walters and <laughs> and and the four people that were on my show and how they did it at the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale at the time, they booked four comedians from New York or out of town, and they would work Monday through Sunday. They do about literally like ten shows, and on Monday was the open mic night, and one of the acts would go on, then an open mic night, open mic or sometimes two. Another act would go on, sometimes two. And the act, now we're talking about every comic we're talking about has passed away. So the four comics I remember, hopefully I remember this because this was over 30 years ago. I am an old motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> it was um, Schmock and Valley, which or Valley, who was Jim Valley, who's a, an executive producer now of so many different television shows, and I work with him on the show Action for Fox with Jay Moore and uh, Schmock was the last name of his partner. They were famous for doing the Tonight Show, a bit of King Kong doing the dishes. They were a very popular comedy team. 
There was a guy named Paul Zimmerman from San Francisco who used to juggle with two sticks and something, uh, and he was a very interesting guy. Uh, there was Jackie the Joke Man Martling, Funny. who was famous for the Howard Stern show. And there was Mitch Walters, who was a straggly, sort of portly man with a big energy and looked like he was doing uh, horse tranquilizers or some kind of drugs. And those were the four comics on. I'll never forget... Um, Right before I went on, Mitch Walters did a joke. He said, you know, I'm a, kind of a big guy. I get really hungry after I smoke marijuana. The other day after I smoked a bag of wa- marijuana, I went to 7-Eleven. When I left, it was called 610. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And a few people laughed, and then he called to the back of the crowd. He said, Marling, you know, I don't know if that one has a future. Something because so, so they were like they had written the joke together, they talked about it, and then I did my act and I did very well. I did an original act and I had all my swimmers because I was swimming at the uh, we had the, at the uh, Hall of Fame pool in Fort Lauderdale with all the swimmers during the break, and it was wonderful. And they all came up to me and they said, "Where'd you come from?" and and you should keep going and doing it. So there was encouragement there, just like for you. Even though you think you know, if you're an artist out there. When you start going through what you're going through and going through the process, there's a lot of supportive people around you. The reason why they're supportive around you is because they know the chances of you making it are slim and none and slim left town. They know the chances of you getting the next level and passing them are like 100,000 to one. So their guard isn't up. They don't really care as much or whatever. But have a guy come in from out of town and do a set on their open mic night and have them get a standing ovation in the room, I can guarantee you they're going to be a little chilly. And so uh, the support for young comics is great, just like it was for me and you. So keep going with the story here. Yeah. Now. Well, no, the, the whole idea was I just wanted to win that contest. So it took me five weeks. I won the $100 contest, and then I won four weeks in a row, and then I was addicted. Then it was like heroin, and I literally left the business and just started writing jokes and turning you know, three minutes into five minutes, five minutes into 20 minutes, and then I took over Haggerty's Comedy Club and became the house MC and the booker, and then everybody that would call in to book their comics i'd go okay i'll book your comic but if you want me to book them you got to help me get booked and before i knew it within a year i was on the road and never turned back i was on the road for six years after so you're blackmailing people yes i was (laughs) whatever it takes barry (laughs) but again it just shows you that this is just uh, i i I know i sound like a broken record but it's like anybody who's listening it's like listen that story so there's a ton of open micers every week coming one guy wins the contest four times in a row. One guy takes over the club. One guy becomes the booker. It's like all the other people don't because they either didn't work hard enough at their craft, weren't figuring out how to navigate, didn't have a vision or a plan, but you had all of that. Well, I also had a lot of I had a lot of business experience in the past, and I always had major drive. And one of the things that you see, especially in road comics and the people that I worked around, and even like a Mitchell Walters, like you look at these guys and you go, they're so good. But there's a common denominator for successful comedians, and that common denominator is the biggest, best ones. Come up with a new act every six months, every year, every two years. You could look at every one of them, with the exception of Rodney, who did like the same jokes forever. All the rest of them would do that. You look at the guys that are still on the road after 20 25, 30 years, they're still great comics, 
but they're too lazy to sometimes come up with the new material. They just don't do it. Not that they're not great, but they don't have that drive. And so I was never that guy. I was always the guy that was like, I need to get, and I still feel that way today. I still feel like, like people look at me and they go, hey, you've had a really great level of success which I have, but it's nothing near to what the expectations I have for myself. So, you know, for me, I think that is a key thing in my personality that goes, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better, it's got to be, you know, Barnum Bailey. I did a show one time where I brought in, you know, a Ferris wheel, and then all these comics would joke around with me all the time because I brought on the foot. I wanted them to just see the Ferris wheel from the highway so they could see what was going on at the comedy club so they'd come in and, you know, just craziness. No, but that's, you know, it's, it is about reinventing yourself, whatever. And some people do, you know, sometimes you can see it like when I was uh, younger, I, I loved Joe Jackson. I love the album Look Sharp. I must have played that album over and over again so many times, and it just, the beat, everything about it, just, I loved it. And then the next album that Joe Jackson came out with was like sort of a jazzy, kind of slower, kind of a whole different lane. And I personally, as a fan, I was disappointed, and I wasn't excited about it. I didn't listen to it a lot. And I didn't talk about it a lot. But now that I look back, I respect him for trying to figure out a different thing, evolve, do whatever, and he could always go back. It's similar to like Jim Carrey, all those movies, all those movies of that craziness. And then, you know, he does uh, The Truman Show or Eternal, um, I'm sorry, Eternal something of the spotless, Eternal Sunshine of the, what was it? Spotless Mind. Of the Spotless Mind. And so, yeah, so it's like for a comic, it's the same thing. And you're right. The comics, a lot of comics say to me all the time, they say to me, listen, Barry, why is it that I'm working all these C clubs and I can't get out of this, you know, this rut of these C clubs? And I always tell them it's about the content. I said, do you know, I mean, do you know any comedian in the world that's doing material like Mitch Hedberg did who is working the C clubs? It's just impossible. It's just if if you're doing the right stuff and you're having the best sets of the night every night, it's impossible. Like you said, you went into that place and you won four weeks in a row. I always say to any comic who listen, they say, what does it take to get to the next level? This is what it takes. You go to your home club, wherever you are, ten times in a row, and ten times in a row you go on, and the doormen, the waitresses, the barbacks, the busboys, the host, every member of the audience, the comedians that hate you. If you were to poll every one of them on an exit poll and they said you were the best comedian that night with the best performance and the best material, and if that happened 10 times in a row, you just, you know, get a helmet. It's all over. You're going to you you're going to get to the next level. And the people that aren't getting the next level where they're being, you know, musical artists or magicians or any kind of band or anything, it's because they're not doing that. You have to consistently when I was doing comedy, what was so frustrating for me is because I would go on and I would have that best set of the night against guys who had been doing it 10 years. And I would be on top of the world. And I think I'd gotten to the point. But the way comedy is, it's like when you're starting, it, 
it robs you of consistency and you don't know why. There's technical things that you just can't see or figure out. And you don't have anybody like playing the tape over and over again like pitching coaches do. Look, your mechanics is here or whatever. So you go on and you kill against some of the greatest comedians in the world. And you think, man, I'm just as good as they are for five or ten minutes. <laughs> and then the next night you go on, you do the same fucking act and it's crickets. There's like tumbleweeds coming across the stage. And meanwhile, a guy with a wooden leg and an eye patch is getting a standing ovation. You're like, what the, what happened? How did this happen? And so, and, and that's the way it is. But if you can have the consistency like you had four weeks in a row, then it's over. Yeah, but the key is, and the lesson is, is what are you doing on the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of that day, right? So if you're just waiting around and going, I'm going to do that five minutes better, I'm going to, that doesn't work. Like the guys that go, I'm going to work eight hours a day like every other job on making this the best act, I'm gonna actually, what you said is very important. I didn't get good in comedy until I started taping myself. I would videotape myself every night and go, why would you say that? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you make a different face here? And I would coach myself because the truth is as much as anybody, nobody's ever gonna want you to be as good as you wanna be, right? And as great as you can be. And so you have to take that into your own hands. But I mean, there's a shortcut thing for people that don't have to, a guy that doesn't have to, he's got an hour act. He can go on for an hour. He's gonna make good money. They're gonna send him to different cities all over and different countries sometimes and to the Bahamas. And so he goes and can, and can potentially get lazy. It's the guys who don't do that and they go, you know what I'm going to do? Every single night I'm going to go up. I'm going to do a different 15 minutes. Even if it doesn't get a laugh, I'll do it in between my best stuff so I can hone it and get it better and do a different act and build the seven minutes that I could do on stage at the improv where managers will see me. And they go, that's a show right there. That's a television show. That's the work you have to do. Regardless of the industry that you're in, if you're willing to do the work and not shortcut it, then you have an opportunity to be great. In any business. Yeah. It's true. So keep going here with your story. So now you're booking, you're getting booked all over the country. How do you end up with the uh, Sam Kinison Outlaws of Comedy Tour? So so what happens is I get booked um, with a guy named Lou Angel Wolf at Ron Bennington's comedy scene in, in Clearwater, Florida. And I go to the comedy scene and I'm doing my act and Ron Bennington and a guy named Ron Diaz had a radio show called The Ron and Ron Show. It was number one in Tampa. It was number one in Miami. It was a huge show. And it's why I wanted to do this particular club. So on the Thursday night, um, Bennington came in and watched the show and said, hey, you got to come in to the radio show tomorrow. I really want you to come in. And I, I don't know if you know Ronnie Bennington, but one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. So brilliantly funny, and I would listen to their show. And when he asked me to come in and do the show, I was like, oh, my God, I have to do it. And again, you know, how many people have gone on that show when he's been there and he says, I want you to come into the radio show? Chances are not a lot and surely not everybody. So again, you're doing something that created a problem, created noise, and it was like an accident on the highway. You have to slow down, you have to watch, and you want to know what's going on, and you want to be a part of it, even though it's sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad. You so, never know, right? right? You never know, and you're on the road, and you're doing all these things, and... I really wanted to be a part of this radio show. Like, it was a 
big thing and I was going with that in mind and everybody knew and I also had an idea to do this disciple show which I wanted to pitch him on and you know Lou was very good friends with him and so I was like okay I'll find my way in to get to these guys he asked me in to do the show the next day that was the disciples of comedy that was the disciples of comedy which you know when Sam Kinison died that um, was the offshoot of the outlaws of comedy correct when Sam Kinison died he um, had the outlaws of comedy that he would tour with right so he would go out on tour and he had these guys that he would go with Mitchell Walters who you mentioned before was one of them Carla Bove was one of them Jimmy Schubert was one of all these guys right and when he died it was in Laughlin Nevada he died in a car crash I remember Jay Moore opened up for him at Tulane University when he was I think a teenager and I believe I could be wrong but I thought he was driving from Tulane to uh, Vegas the next few days and it happened uh, you know somewhere within a week of that time it was the last gig he did I believe I don't remember the specifics of it but I know he just came back from Hawaii he had just gotten married he had cleaned up he had done a bunch of stuff like that I never met Sam I didn't know Sam but I knew all these other guys when Sam was away in Hawaii or doing those gigs all these other guys would come to Florida and hang out and I knew them all from Haggerty's yeah and Sam was a guy that you know just a, I, I just want to break in and I'm sorry but I think it's important for a lot of when I uh, started coming to Los Angeles, I used to go to the comedy store, and I had heard through word of mouth that you have to go to the comedy store original room. Don't worry about anything that happens during the show from like 8 or 9 o'clock until midnight. Just get there at around midnight or 1130, and that's the only thing you need to go for. Because there's this guy named Sam Kinison that closes every show in the original room. And it doesn't matter if there's five people there or it's packed. You'll see all the comics running into the room to see him. And he'll be doing something that you'll be like nothing you've ever seen before in your life. And uh, again, no internet, no email, no social networking, just word of mouth. And the old school word of mouth. And I never forget when I saw him uh, the first time he got on stage and he had this thing that he did. I didn't know that it was part of his thing. The mic would, the way the Comedy Store original room works and still works to this day, it's very unorthodox for those of you who've been to comedy clubs all across the world. There's no host in the original room. There's just a guy running the light, which tells comics when to get off. They say, thank you, good night. They get their round of applause, and then they stop, and they introduce the next guy. It's called, in comedy, Tag Team. And it's very unusual uh, to have it that way, but a lot of comedy clubs did it normally to save money because a host could cost, you know, an extra $100 a night, and... As you know, if you're doing 10 shows, it's an extra 1000 You do four weeks a month, that's 4000 and it adds up. And so Sam had this thing. I didn't know about it, and I'd never seen anybody do this before. He walks up, and the guy's introduced him, and the mic is in the stand. And he would take the mic, he would grab the mic stand, detach the mic, and he'd be holding it by the neck. And he would do this thing where he, and I saw for the first time, where he uh, sort of uh, jolted it up towards the ceiling and then grabbed it in the middle. 
and then took it sideways and just threw it to the side where it bounced off the stage and into the tables and chairs. Didn't matter if there was anybody sitting there or not. <laughs> That's what he did. And I saw him do that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy's got balls. He's wearing the long coat and he's got the long hair and he's doing jokes about, you know, things that I, I never heard. I was an innocent kid. I didn't know, you know, hearing about a guy talking about how he needed to satisfy his woman and start screaming about it and the, the, the screaming into the mic and everything. I was like floored. But what it showed me was is that he was worth what people talked about. And he was an incredible, incredible performer and an incredible voice of comedy that will never be duplicated. And and again, he created those holy shit moments and he went on at the end. And later on in my career, when I moved to New York and opened up a comedy club in New York, there was a young kid who was creating the same reputation there. Uh at a, a place called the Comedy Cellar on McDougal Street, which was a hole-in-the-wall place that was the most respected place. It was so... In any other mind of a comedian, the Comedy Cellar would be like a hell gig. And I don't say that because it is a hell gig, because it's not, but it is structured to where the ceilings are literally seven feet tall or six and a half feet the stage is about two inches high. There's a piano on the stage that takes up half the stage. There's a row of tables and chairs in front of the stage and a pathway in back of that that goes to two bathrooms that are make a gas station bathroom in Martinsville, Indiana look like the Four Seasons. And it's the only bathroom in the restaurant and the comedy club. So people are walking back and front to the stage like that. It's just that kind of thing. But there was one kid who would always take that late night spot, that last spot, and comics would come in. And that kid was Dave Attell. And I'll never forget, I'd heard the word of mouth again about Dave Attell, but he was a young guy then. He was probably only doing it like, you know, two or three years. from a, and, But he just was going on. That's the spot he loved to do when he took it. And he would be bombing sometimes. I'll never forget when I walked in the first time. He had this thing where he would tell a joke and it would bomb. And I walked in right as a joke bombed. And he would take the top of the mic and grab it with his hand and turn it, imagine it narrowly. And he would say, let me turn this to funny. Oh, funny. And I'll funny. never forget the first joke I heard him do. And then we'll get back to what we're talking about. He says, he's, he says, uh, me and my friend went to the Gap uh, today. Uh, he comes out of the dressing room. He's wearing overalls. He looks at me and he says, uh, Dave, what go with these? I looked at him and I said, I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you what doesn't go with those. Jobs and women. <laughs> And the crowd just exploded, and I knew right then and there why this guy was closing these shows. And I'm not equating Dave Attell to Sam Kinison, and he wouldn't either, but the originality of Dave Attell and what he was all about has created a legacy, and there isn't any comic in the business or anybody in the business that wouldn't say that Dave Attell is one of the funniest, most unique people in the business. Same with Sam, and made their mark and, and like that. And again you're going into a situation where you're starting this tour 
based on the name of this guy that you're following who passed away, who was a legendary guy and a genius. How did you create this brand with these guys? And did you feel that the four of you guys, even as collectively as a group, could carry on the Sam Kinison name, knowing what a genius and a brilliant original voice he was? Well, we figured if we had the voice of Bennington, who was the host of this show and a comedian and a club owner and really brilliantly funny to help sell shows on the air, right? So he, we were in, I don't remember, 12, 13 markets, something like that. So if we could sell the tickets in that market, bring these guys on the air, let people see how funny they were. I don't know if you've ever seen Carla Bove, but one of the of funniest people on the planet. I mean, a guy that would tell a joke and then act it out and then just do it in a way that was so animated. You put him in a theater and he takes over the whole theater. Just brilliant. Carl was Sam's opening act. And best friend. And best friend. And best friend. And in fact, you know, there's other stories we there's won't get into. There's amazing but... <laughs> stories. That's another podcast. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you have all these great comedians. You go, could it be Sam Kinison? Probably not. But could it be a great tour that you could fill up seats and make money from and you know, make a mark? Absolutely. And at the time, that was before the Kings of Comedy and before all that other stuff. And you look at it and you go, we really had a great tour with some great guys if we could get this thing on. So the whole idea was, you know, let's get to Bennington. Let's let's have Bennington see this. And eventually he did, you know, see all of that. And I ended up becoming part of the radio show. And you know, my first day in that radio show, which I was telling you before, I got I got Don King on the phone, and I, then I started to get other people on the phone, and it was craziness. And they were just like, "Dude, how did you? Where did you get these?" And that was before cell phone. You know, like I literally had a book where I had Don King's number and got him on the phone, and Anthony Hardaway, and you just you do all of these things, and it got me into the radio show, which got me into the concert thing, and all of those things kind of happened. Got it. And so tell me about your next move after that, after this thing went down and the radio. What was your next move and what did you decide that you wanted to do after that? When the radio show, um, the radio show kind of imploded. Uh, Ron Diaz, his wife, got AIDS. And when that happened, every day you're going into a comedy show and things were imploding. Like it was bad and sad and not fun. And it's every day you're getting in at 3.34 in the morning and things are just imploding and it just wasn't fun for me anymore. So I went to the CEO of the radio network um, and I was like, listen, I'm, I'm not really happy. They were selling the network at the time um, to Paxson Communications. So we had ended up selling the, the network to Paxson Communications. And it was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. Let's do something fun. We both love sports. Let's become sports agents. So we became sports agents. And I did that for about two years and just hated it. Didn't love the business. Wasn't really the guy that wanted to take care of other people. I really wanted to do my own thing and, and figure that out. Um, and so... I ended up doing some technology business. I did a couple of other things for a couple of years. And then I said, okay, I'm going to get back into entertainment. And I was looking for one act that I was going to take out in a concert tour. And I found Eddie Griffin. And I picked Eddie out of everybody else because it was back in 2002. So you wanted to become a concert promoter or an agent? Or no, what? I just wanted to do a big tour and get back into entertainment. Okay, let's. but, but how... Would you make money off the tour if you're not a promoter and you're not an agent? How would you make money so off the tour? I would have been I would have been the promoter okay. and the producer Got both. It. So I would because be... the promoter has to. For those of you who don't know, the promoter has to actually guarantee money and put money up. And when you do a tour, 
and you're doing a multi-city tour, like, you know, we did the Dane Cook story earlier, you know, Bill Blumenreich, the promoter for Dane Cook's tour, last tour that I remember, I mean, he had to put up and guarantee millions of dollars. Now, granted, Eddie Griffin wasn't doing arenas at the time, but he was, you know, he could have been doing, like, uh, you know, big comedy clubs and small theaters at the time. No, actually, he was doing bigger than that. I mean, we were doing 4,000, 5,000-seat theaters. I mean, Eddie was big what, enough. That was after the movie that he did. The... That was just before Undercover Brother, Okay, which is why I chose him, because I said, let me pick a guy that has, number one, the urban market is very, very loyal and very, very loyal to a guy like Eddie. So you go, okay, if we pick some cities like Atlanta and Washington, D.C. and all of that, I'll do the staging. I'll produce it. And where do you have the money to guarantee him all this money? Well, I had made some good money in doing technology and in doing... I I had always made money. So you just took the risk. Had you ever met Eddie Griffin before? I never met him before. Okay, so... I came to this town, living in Florida, right? I came to this town and I made a meeting with the people at Brillstein Gray and William Morris and talked them into having Eddie in the room. I walked in. I had t-shirts made. I had jackets made. I had set stuff made all on my own. I, they could have said no. We walked in. Eddie was in the room. We started to make our presentation and about five minutes in, Eddie goes, whoa, 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 whoa. These are my guys right here. I want these guys right here, right? And so, this is what's fascinating for, again, <laughs> having been in comedy as long as I have, the chances of a comedy artist who's peaking at the top of his game to choose a promoter that has never been in the business before and ever promoted a date before, that will never happen in a million years. I don't care. I mean, I don't care if the guy guarantees and writes a check and puts it in somebody's bank account and says, I know I've never done it before. Do it. You got to start off with like one date here and prove yourself, one date there. Similar to like Bill Blumenreich, who started in one thing here, one thing there, did some music theater productions, took over a few dates and proved himself. And now, you know, has done it. I'm probably has done the Rolling Stones and huge acts as well as, you know, amazing concert acts. So the fact that you convinced a guy right there and then in the room. And when, when an artist, when you're taking a meeting, this is another thing that's fascinating for those managers and agents listening out there. When you take a meeting with an artist, one of the things that's fascinating is like, no matter what you do, you go into the meeting and you say, listen, we're just going to listen, okay? So don't commit to anything in the room. We're going to listen. And then after the meeting, we'll talk about it and then we'll make a decision. And again, when you're a manager or an agent, and your artist sits up in, in the room and says, you know what? These are my guys. <laughs> it's like, you're like, oh, my God, we're, we're, we're fucked. We, we, now we have to go with this now. I mean, because this well, guy didn't listen to me. They, they did. And I remember we went to Brillstein Gray and we set the structure of how we wanted to do it. And I'll never forget the phone call that I got. Brillstein Gray is one of the top management companies and uh, William Morris, one of the top agents. Yeah, I got the call and it's, the, it's his agent. From William Morris. Stacy Mark? Stacy Mark. Yes, who, who's a, a tremendous who, agent uh, uh, there, personal appearances. And she's fantastic. I yeah. love her. And she helped me get Wayne Brady for Don't Forget the Lyrics. And that's yeah. a whole other story. And no, um, but it's relationships, which we're going to talk about. It, it is. It is. And But I remember them calling me up on the phone and going, so let me get this straight. You want to change the way the concert business is done in this country? And I go, well... 
It's not that. It's that you're putting me in a situation where I can only make money on the last 10%. So in other words, I would have to fill up this 5,000 seats 90% of the way before I ever made a penny. And, and you, that's the way the promotions business works. And right? what I mean, you, well, not necessarily. Well, that's why I wanted to change it. <laughs> what Jeff's talking about is that agents and managers are always trying to get the best deal for their artists. And promoters traditionally, there's many kinds of promoters who work for different things. If I were a, a betting man and I would say the average amount of money that a promoter makes for a show is 15% of the gate um, after the expenses and everything like that. And the artist would make 85%. And then there'd be a guarantee. So in other words, they might guarantee an artist 25000 which they could make back if the room is, let's say, you know, half full or whatever. And then the rest, they would split, you know, 85 15 Now, the bigger acts would you get, then they'll cut it down to 10%, the agent and manager. And then the uh, they'll do a 90-10 split. And there are situations, uh, which I know, which I have been a part of, which the promoter makes 5%. And if you're booking the Rolling Stones and you want to book the Rolling Stones, they've never not sold out. So there might be a situation where they might squeeze you down to 3%. But you're booking the Rolling Stones. It's a respect play. you got to do it. And so there's all different things like that. But what he's alluding to, Jeff, is the fact that the agency wants to guarantee that their artist gets taken care of and so what he's saying is some some people try to hold a promoter to like, hey, look, it's going to sell out. It's going to sell out. So when it sells out, we get 90, you get the last 10. So we get the first 90, you get the last 10. They try to take advantage of young promoters who don't know the ins and outs of the business and try to make that deal to where it's next to impossible to do it. So if they do anywhere under 90% of the business, the promoter loses money. Whereas in the traditional way I'm talking about, if you split the profits after the guarantee and expenses, let's say 90-10, then starting at like 60% of the audience being full, the people start making a little money here and there. So keep going. I'm which sorry. Is, which is what we did. Now that mm -hmm. was the, basically just trying to make a structure where we, wouldn't, where we would protect ourselves. And again, Eddie Griffin who at the time was great and hot and doing fantastic, is not the Rolling Stones. And I wasn't willing to go, hey, I'm going to put up everything and take all of the risk and potentially have none of the reward. So in any case, we did that. And during that tour, during that tour, we were here in town. We're at the Four Seasons. We were out on the patio, which Eddie loved to go to. And, of course, we had to treat. So it was Eddie and his entire entourage, and then we would get the bill, right? But Eddie was holding court. And at one of those meetings back in 2002, 2003, I met these guys at another table and I'm like, so what do you do? And one guy goes, well, I created, you know, Blind Date, the television show. And I go, oh, cool. What do you do? And the other guy goes, oh, I created Love Cruise. And I'm like, wow, so all you dating show guys travel together? No. And they're like, no, no. And I go, whoa, just the reality TV guys travel together? No. So I didn't even get their names. But on the way home, on my flight home, I was like, you know, reality television's getting pretty big right now. I've got a few ideas for reality TV. I'm going to go home and I'm going to create something. So I went home and I created two big shows and it took me two weeks and I did more than I should probably ever do. I made Bibles and all kinds of stuff which I didn't need to do. And then I was like, let me find out. Who A the Bible, by the way, is your is, is for the audience that doesn't know. 
is normally like a, a presentation of what the specifics of the show would be. For instance, a Bible for a scripted show or a treatment, as they call it, might be the first page might be a, a synopsis of what the first episode is. The second page might be the breakdown of the characters, and the third page might be uh, uh, 13 paragraphs of what the A story and the B story would be of all 13 or the next 12 episodes. A Bible in reality would just show you the trajectory of how it would be if it's a competition, how each episode would lay out. If it's not a competition, how it would go in the trajectory of the series with the characters that you might have it in or the participants. And then it would have pictures sometimes and visuals and things like that. So actually for this particular thing, the Bible is getting into specifics of cost and crew and things that you would never have to involve yourself with and I got crazy to do that but I created these two shows and then I was like let me go find out who the creator is of of Blind Date because I didn't even get the guy's name so I did what I do and I got on the phone and I found out who the guy was and it's a guy named David Garfinkel who has a company called Renegade 83 and I said okay I'm going to track this guy down and I called his office and they said he'll return they didn't return for the whole entire day so I called his office the next day again they said no you're on his call list he'll return he didn't return again the whole day I was like what the fuck right so the next day i waited all day long and you know this guy's got a bunch of shit going on i'm just waiting for the phone call right so i wait until seven o'clock that night and i call and he answers his own phone and he goes this is david and i go how the fuck do you guys get anything done in this town you gotta be kidding me he goes who is this i go dude are you fucking kidding me i have called you three times you haven't returned in three days you gotta be kidding me he goes who is this i go my name is jeff i met you over at the four seasons he goes oh dude you're on my call list i go dude i'm not joking with you how do you people get anything done in this town i'm not joking with you i mean you gotta be out of your mind i go I, let me just tell you how i work i got a 24-hour rule if I call somebody or somebody calls me, within 24 hours I call them back because I don't know. It's business. Who knows what it is? How do you let something go for three days? Like, dude, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, let's talk. We talk for 45 minutes on the phone, busting balls, joking, having fun. And finally I say, listen, I've got a couple of shows that I created. They're not dating shows. I know that's what you do, but they're big network. He goes, I don't want to do dating stuff anymore. I want to do big network stuff. And I said, okay. I'd love to come in and pitch you. And he goes, great, when do you want to come? I said, when are you open? He goes, tomorrow. And I go, tomorrow's great. He goes, okay, how about 11 o'clock? I said, 11 o'clock is fantastic. However, I'm going to be flying in for this meeting, okay? He goes, flying in? What are you talking about? You don't live here? I go, I don't live there, but I want to live there, okay? But I don't live there, but I'm going to fly in for the meeting. You cannot cancel on me. He goes, I won't cancel. I said, you can't cancel because the guy who doesn't return a phone call in three days is bound to cancel on you. He goes, I promise you I won't cancel. I said, okay. And he goes, by the way, when did I meet you? And I go, it was like two weeks ago at the Four Seasons. He goes, oh, in New York City. And I said, no, it was in Beverly Hills. And he goes, no, it couldn't have been it, because I was in New York City at that time. And I go, David, we're talking for 45 minutes. I know it was you. You told me that you created Blind Date. It ended up, I flew in the next day. I meet with him. It wasn't him. It, the guy that had said that he had created Blind Date was just some guy bullshitting. It wasn't even him or <laughs> Jay Renfro, the two guys. I end up pitching him two shows. He says he <laughs> wants to do both. I end up making deals with those guys. And that is how I got into reality television. That's exactly how it happened. Unbelievable. <laughs> Fate is an amazing thing. <laughs> is that crazy? It's crazy, but persistence. Yeah. Persistence. That's fantastic. So. Yeah. 
take me through like your experience, like in those first reality shows, what happened, what was the process like in developing and putting together? First of all, when you're a young guy and you're doing a deal, even with a show you create with a production company, basically uh, similar to Eddie Griffin, what he wanted uh, from a young promoter, you basically bent over a coffee table and you have to take whatever deal they give you. And it's not necessarily a great deal, even though you're creating your own reality show, the first deals you make. You, you do. You, it's almost like that. I'm a guy that, listen, I've done a lot of business before. So for the average person, I've never been anything else but an executive producer in this town. I know a lot of people that have been in the business for 20 years, and they're just becoming executive producers. I just didn't do it that so way. So they gave you the executive producer credit right away when they, they didn't, didn't have, have a choice. To. They didn't why, have a choice. Why they didn't they have a choice? Well, they called me. How we would so you even know about the business to ask for one? Well, I studied. I studied. For and those of you who don't know, the executive producer credit in television is the highest level credit you can have, and uh, in film, uh, the producer credit is the highest level right. credit you can have, and the executive producer credit is the second credit. And again, in television, executive producer is the top one. Co-executive producer is the second. Producer, the third. Correct. So then, you, right. Yeah. So what had happened was, and it always comes down to, what is the level of content that you have? How great is it? How bad does the network want it? All of those things. The first thing I ever sold was in the room to Jeff Gaspin at NBC. We went in. I pitched him a show. And he was like, really like, it wasn't actually in the room. He's like, I really like this. If you would have been here last week, I would have bought this in the room. Uh, but let me think about it. And I think we're, we might want to do it. And within a week or so, he had called up and said that he wanted to do it. That show ended up not happening, which was Secret Admirer. But we put it into development, and I got a check, which was nice. But your first thing you ever pitched went the first to a thing, network. The first thing I ever pitched to a network went. That's and incredible. And it went at like my second or third pitch. That's so incredible. It was pretty good. It and you were pitching good. with the guys from Renegade 83? No, 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 no. That ended up, that deal fell apart. I won't even get into that deal. Oh, okay. But the deal with Renegade 83 never happened. But what did happen at Renegade 83 was David brought me in to meet a guy named Greg Goldman. And Greg Goldman. Greg was just here on this couch about uh, three days ago. I love Not Greg. on a podcast, but. Uh, I, I love Greg. And Greg is a great personal friend of mine. And he introduced amazing. me to Greg. Greg was the director of development at the time. I met Greg, and we hit it off big time. And when we have time, I'll tell you some other stories between me and Greg that are unbelievable, including how we sold lyrics and all these things. But I met Greg, and Greg and I became friends. And ultimately, Greg went to work at ABC. The first pitch Greg ever brought in to ABC when he went to work at ABC was one of my pitches. I brought him with Drew Rosenhaus, the big sports agent, of right? Course. We went in, it was craziness. And ultimately we sold Don't Forget the Lyrics together. So um, so meeting Greg was a huge thing for me because he really did help me. And in fact, I remember at ABC when he introduced me at the time it was Andrea Wong that was running the network. Of course. Okay? She's she's, an, and she's an amazing executive. And I you know I asked Greg this question. I said, tell me, I know people like you feel like there are literally less than a handful of executives who are great executives and make things happen and have a vision of the future and what it takes to put on a successful show. Who are those people that you feel? And he mentioned three people two or three people and one of them was andrea wong andrea wong is is one of the best for me it's mike darnell 
the former president of Fox uh-huh. and now the president of Warner Brothers Television. There's really, he's so... He's the one who greenlit American Idol. He greenlit American Idol, although that was forced on him a little bit. A little bit, you know, that was brought in by... But he's green, greenlit he so many be, shows. Anybody should be so glad that something's forced on him. He, he's like a genius, but he's a genius. I mean, he's literally a genius. Um, in any case, you know, Greg had brought me into ABC and stood up in the meeting. He had just started there and said, I want to tell you about Jeff, one of the most brilliant creators I've ever met, one of the people in this business that is absolutely going to make a mark and that really nobody really knew who I was yet at the time and just really stuck his neck out for me. So for stuff like that, you never forget and you stay loyal to those people. And so anyway. Um, That's awesome yeah, stuff. Yeah. I love this stuff. I yeah. love this stuff. So, okay, so you meet him. And you form that relationship again, relationships. Stacy Mark, relationships. Greg Goldman, relationships. So, all right. So, tell me how Don't Forget Your Lyrics goes. Because this, this is what I remember about this. And those of you who remember five years ago, NBC and Fox were rushing to get out a singing competition show. Both of them knew they were developing something. Both of them knew things were going forward. And when it was announced, if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when Don't Forget Your Lyrics was going to go on the air at a certain point of time, NBC, who, by the way, at the time was was, uh, being run the reality division by your dear friend Jeff Gaspin, (laughs) <laughs> it he, was he decided to fast track a show that he had and pick it up for I believe I don't know how many episodes was an enormous amount of episodes but picked it up and fast tracked it so it would launch I believe if I'm not mistaken 2 weeks or a month before don't forget your lyrics and that was called the singing bee right the singing bee goes on 2 weeks or a month before don't forget the lyrics and it kills. It's the first episode literally is like 20 to 25 million people. The second episode kills. Not as well, but about 20 million. NBC, in a preemptive move to try to scare or shake or however it was, Fox and don't forget the lyrics because there was this big competitive thing because there was a situation with another show called The Contender, Mm -hmm. which both NBC and Fox got in a big argument about, and Fox trumped them and brought that out earlier and really stuck at the NBC. So NBC, which is an untold story, and they probably would never admit it, wanted to figure out a way to derail your show. And so what they did was... They announced that they were picking up Singing Bee for an unprecedented 26 episodes or 24 episodes for the rest after two airings. But then a little something happened (laughs) on the way to uh, success and celebration. Your show launched. Now take us through what you were going through when NBC was doing all this stuff and what you were feeling and what you were hearing from Fox and how... In order to do that, I have to take you back a little bit. Please, take take me way back. I'll take you back a little bit. I love it. So what ends up happening, and I won't even tell you the whole story leading up to lyrics because it's a crazy story. Why not? That's why we're here. So here's what happens. You don't understand. This is what what this is all about. The inspirational story. So, So Greg is working at ABC, okay? 
and I pitch a show to ABC with him and Andrea Wong, and they want to do it. They tell me, hey, you got to find this production company. We need a production company to back you up because you don't have the experience. I say, okay, we'll go find a big production company. They have me meet with three or four. I don't like any of them, okay? So I go meet with a guy named Chris Colin, who was the former head of UTA, and he had just taken over RDF, which is a big production company out of the UK, and he represented... Gay Rosenthal, who I had done business with before. So he had already sold two shows for me, and I didn't even really know the guy, right? I figured, let me go pitch him this show. I go and I pitch him the show, and he's like, we're going to do it. So I call Greg Goldman at ABC, and I say, hey, just so he goes, I got another. I call him up, and he answers his phone, and I go, I got another production. I got a production company I want you to meet. He goes, no, I have a new production company for you. I go, no, I already got the production company. He goes, it doesn't work that way, Jeff. We're the network. You got to let us tell you. And I said, listen. I have a guy that I trust. I have a guy that I like. He's going to give me the deal that I want. I already have the deal cleared. You should at least meet him. And I, he goes, who is it? And I said, it's Chris Colin over at RDF. And he goes, let me call you right back on your cell phone. And I hang up the phone with him. And this is where the story is going to get really interesting, and ladies and me, gentlemen. And he calls me back. He calls me back on my cell phone. And he goes... <laughs> Are you serious about the Chris Cullen thing? And I said, yeah. He goes, what do you know? And I go, what do you mean, what do I know? I, 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 what are you talking about? And he goes, okay, listen. I'm leaving ABC, and I'm becoming, I'm becoming the executive vice president over at RDF. And I go, you're going to let me do this deal with ABC, and you're not even in it? What are you talking about? Like, we got to be together on this thing. And he goes, listen, you can't say anything, but that's what's going down. And that deal happens. I end up, doing, I end up pitching a ton of shows to Greg over at RDF because we're close. And so, so they have option like five shows for me. Now I create a different show, not Don't Forget the Lyrics, but a different show, which was really a great show. My agent at the time said to me, which now it's William Morris, at the time it was a different agent, and the agent said to me, listen, you cannot do anything else with RDF. I don't want you to do anything with RDF because we have five shows option. They haven't sold anything. Let's go meet with Mark Burnett. Let's go meet with Endemol. Let's go meet with Fremantle. Let's go meet with ITV. Let's meet with some other people and see what it is. And I said, okay. I create this show. He sets me up with four meetings in one day. One of the shows was Reveille. I mean, one of the production companies was Reveille, who's done which was big. run, Which was run at the time by Ben Silverman, who became the president of NBC for about a year or so. And Howard Owens, who is now yeah. running National Geographic, and great guys, right? So I go into the very first pitch meeting with this show, and the next day, or that day later on, I had Mark Burnett and all these other people to meet with to pitch this show. And I go and I pitch... This other show and Howard Owens at Reveille goes, I got to have this show. I love it. I got to have it. You can't take it anywhere else. I go, well, I've got pitch meetings set up after this. I got to go pitch it. He goes, no, you got to keep it, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to take care of this. You just go back and do your thing. I mean, you can't go. So I leave the meeting. I walk outside. I pick up my phone. I call my agent and I go, hey, we got a problem here. Howard Owens doesn't want me to take this. He goes, I know. He called me already. We can't take it anywhere. I go, how could he call you that? I just walked out of his <laughs> office. He goes, he called me. He goes, listen, we don't want to make enemies with Reveille. These guys have an in at NBC. They're really big. These guys are strong. You don't want to screw them over. We can, we're going to do the deal with them. And I go, but I want to go to Mark Burnett, and I want to go do all these other things. He goes, it was actually that the meetings were the next day at Mark Burnett and stuff. And I said, I really want to go to Mark Burnett. He goes, well, I'm going to cancel the meetings. I said, don't cancel it. I'm going to come up with something. Don't cancel it. 
I had read Bernie Brostein's book. So Bernie Brostein talks about creating um, Hee Haw. And he created Hee Haw by melding together. He had 3 o'clock in the morning. He woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and melded um, – um, what's the show that I'm thinking of? Oh my God. Um, laughing, laughing along with whatever that great Southern show that was on. I'm trying to think, um, green acres, green acres, right? <laughs> Took the two together and said, let me make a country <laughs> version. Sorry. Sorry. I am let so me make old. a, let me make a country version of those two things and made that show. So I said to myself, what are the two biggest shows on TV right now? At the time it was deal or no deal. And it was American Idol. And I said, let me make a show between these two shows. And the deal or no deal model didn't work, but the model of, you know, millionaire worked. And I ended up making this lyric show. And that's how I created Don't Forget the Lyrics. And that's exactly how it happened. Unbelievable. But, but, and so the production company that was involved in that did. So you, here's what happened with that. So, so you I pitch decide, it to, the, you go to Mark Burnett and a bunch of people. I go to Mark Burnett and I go to End Them All. I pitch it to both. And I have a lunch the next day with Greg Goldman right at the Ivy. So we go, okay. I go and I meet with Greg Goldman and I walk in the door and I sit down and he looks at me and he goes, what's going on? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you look like the cat that ate the canary. I go, I created something really spectacular. I spent the whole night last night creating it and I feel like it's a big winner. He goes, what is it? And I said, I, I can't tell you. And he goes, what do you mean you can't tell me? And I go, I can't tell you because I can't sell it to you. And you're going to want it. And I can't give it to you because I have five shows with you. And my agent says I can't give it to you. He goes, dude, it's me. What are you talking about? Like, tell me what the show is. And I said, Greg, I can't tell you the show because you're going to want it. He goes, I won't ask. for. I'll help you bid it up because other people had wanted to do it. And I said, I would never do that. But I'll tell you the show, but you can't ask me. So I told him what the show is. And he goes, oh, my God, I love it. I love it. I love it. That night I went home and I thought about it, I thought about it, I thought about it, and I said, you know, if I go make a deal with Burnett or if I make a deal with Endemol, it's going to take me a month to get that deal done before anything. I really love this show. I want to get it out. So I called up Greg and I said, hey, you want this show? And he goes, oh my God, I can't tell you how bad. I said, okay, here's the deal. I am going to email you right now the structure of the deal that I want. And just to break in, these deals, when you option a reality show to a company, these companies, like, they squeeze you. They do anything they can. You'll get, like, an option deal that sometimes, it's very common if you're an artist and you create a reality show, they'll do, like, what's called a shopping option agreement where they they have the rights to have your show or your concept for six months, sometimes a year, and you look at it, there's no, a lot of times they don't give you any money up front. And then they give you, they show you the percentages of what you're going to make. And, and they don't show you the executive producer fees you're going to make because the budgets haven't been made yet. They don't tell you normally that you're going to make a huge percentage of that. They don't tell you what your episodic fee is going to be. Sometimes they'll guarantee your credit. Sometimes they'll try to squeeze you down to co-executive producer credit and not executive producer credit. And then you'll look at the back end, which is in success, and you'll see a number that sometimes, believe it or not, is between 2.5% and, and 5% or 10% when you do your first deal and you're like, wait a second, I created the show, I brought you the show, I gave you the show. And what you're telling, and you're getting the physical production through the show, which means that if the show costs a million dollars an episode, 
guaranteed on a bad day, you're making $300,000 profit. That's on a bad day with your line items from editing bays to graphics to everything else with all your people you have on salary. So I'm handing you a minimum of 300000 maybe as much as 500000 plus the underages that if you go under budget that you don't show, that you pad the budget, that you don't show the network and you squeeze into your pocket. And now in success, for every $100, you're saying that I'm only going to make 10 or $5 and you're going to make $95. So even when you've experienced success like Jeff did and getting things going and doing what it's going, your goal as a creator is to get a deal with a production company that gives you 50% of the profits and 50% of the executive producer fees at best. But the problem is... To get that, normally you have to have had a show that was a huge hit. And even if you have a show that was a huge hit, the chances of you getting a 50-50 deal, like somebody, let's say, like Peter Engel had grandfathered in his deal. Peter Engel had a deal where he was 50% of the gross. He actually made more money than the network because they had to pay the expenses and everything like that. So when you were doing this deal for Don't Forget the Lyrics, by the way, was it called that, the initial name? No, the initial name was called Off the Charts. Off the Charts. And then it was called Jukebox Hero, and then it became Don't Forget the Lyrics. Yeah. So this deal that you're making with Greg, he has to do it. My guess is he's never done a 50-50 deal there in his life. So how did you get the best possible deal, and what was your number in your head that you said... I'll do this deal for because I doubt they were going to be 50-50 partners with you on everything, which shocked me. Well, so there's a lot of different ways that a deal is done, but even more important is they could have said 50%, but the way this business works is depending on how the language is written, you may never see that 50% or it doesn't make a difference what the number is if you ever see it. So there's a lot of people that have back-end deals that never see a penny because the language isn't written properly. So you may make money on this, but it loses money on this and they find a way not to pay you. So my goal was to say, listen, this is the deal that I want, regardless of what the numbers are, but they were very nice. But also I wanted what's called a separate pots deal, meaning if we make money on merchandise and if we make money on the sale, and we make, but we lose money on some Asian market, well, that's a loss and has nothing to do with the other stuff. So I gave him the deal that I wanted, that I thought was very, very fair, and that I thought could happen if they did it, but they hadn't done a deal like that. Did before. you tell them you've got 24 hours to make this deal or else I'm going to the other people? What I said to him was, it wasn't even 24 hours. I said, let me know in the morning if this is good for you. If it's good, we're done. If not, let me know. And I said, if there's anything at all that you come to me that you go, unless it's making the deal richer, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to do the deal. The power of no. Nine o'clock in the morning, he called me up and he goes, done. And I said, now, done. He- and by the way, part of the deal was we've got to be out in the next week pitching it. Now, when he said done, did you say to yourself as you hung up the phone, damn it, no. should I ask for more? I didn't. I knew what I asked for was fair and rich for me, and it was good. And what you, you want to leave everybody happy in the deal. You don't really want to make it so that that deal doesn't happen. Not everybody so, feels that way. Well, I know. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I like to leave a little money on the table. That way, everybody still wants to do business with you all the time. And I'm a guy that's, you know, I do a lot of business with a lot of these big production companies. You always try to be fair, but you ask for the right deal. 
So the way that Don't Forget the Lyrics happens is we put the show together. I put together this whole presentation. I get a fake contestant to come out with us. I get speakers. I get this whole gigantic thing. We're going to go out and pitch it. We go and we pitch it to CBS. We pitch the show. We walk into NBC to pitch the show, walk in the door. We set up. It takes me 30 minutes to set up. I do this whole gigantic thing. The executive that came in was about 40 minutes late. Who was that executive? I'm trying to remember his first name, and he did. Craig Plestis? Craig Plestis. So, and Craig was also my executive on, um, on the show that I sold initially. He worked directly under... Jeff Gaspin. So I knew I knew Craig's. We, Craig walked in the door, and he looked at uh, Chris Colin, who had just started RDF, right, and said, "I want to do a show with you." And he looked at me, and he goes, "I want to do a show with you." So I'm excited to see the show today. And we said, "Fantastic!" And I stood up and I said, "Let me tell you what the show is." And I didn't get through the first paragraph, and he goes, "Hold it, stop! Are you telling me this is a game show?" Yes, and I said, "Yes." And he goes, "And about." knowing the lyrics of popular songs? And I said, yes. And he goes, I greenlit a show yesterday. Now, Barry, I can't tell you, sometimes you create something and you go, this is it. This is my ticket. This is the show. It's so original. It's so hard to come up with something original. So when you haven't seen anything like it, and it's not American Idol, it's not what's on the air, but yet it's singing and it's lyrics and it's stuff that I know really well, and my heart drops. And he goes, don't say another word. Pack it up. I'm good. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I wait outside. Chris and the team had other business to talk to him about. They walked outside and I said, listen to me. We have to be at the other networks today. You got to make your phone call. We got to be there today. I got to make this happen. Chris got on the phone, made it happen. We went over. We pitched a couple of different networks. And then finally at 6 o'clock that night, we went in to pitch Mike Darnell at Fox. Now this is something that's really amazing. I just want to share with you. Mike Darnell is a guy that, to again, this is something that you made happen that I have no idea how you. Mike Darnell is a guy that there is no way in hell you are going to call him up the day of and get a meeting with him that day. Even when you have a meeting with him and it's the greatest pitch in the world, you could get there. He could be 40 minutes late, an hour late, an hour and a half late. You could be waiting, and he could be say, look, you know, we've got to reschedule this meeting. He was always famous because American Idol was so huge that he had this, you know, and he was a genius. He had this sense of entitlement that it was like, look, you know, even though I love these people, I, you know, I, I, I can't make it happen, or I'm not going to happen, or I'm going to reschedule. I don't feel it today, or I don't want to stick around. And it was common for many producers out there in the world, including myself, when I pitched to Mike Darnell, you know, one out of three times he'd be there and he'd be there at the meeting on the time that it was supposed to be. But the other two out of three times he'd either be late and then you'd say he's not going to make it or else he'd reschedule. So the fact that you got him in the room that day is like, I can't even believe it. It's, it was craziness, and the good thing was, and what Chris did is called him and said, hey, NBC, who you know you went to war with with the boxing show, has this show. We have a project. We have a product that's better. We think that you'll love it, and we went in. We pitched it to Mike, and in the room, he saw it, and he said, you know, I think we would have to do this. He made a couple of little tweaks, but then he looked around the room, and he goes, okay, you know what I think we're going to do on this? I think we're going to do a pilot. And he looked around the room and he looked at Chris and he goes, pilot? And Chris goes, yeah. And he looks at me, he goes, pilot? 
Yes. And he looked at Greg. Pilot? Greg said yes. He looks at the fake contestant. He goes, pilot? And the fake contestant goes, yeah. And I go, he's a fake contestant. He can't approve a pilot. Like, you know, what are you talking about? He goes, leave me the boards and stuff. He went upstairs. Next day, we got the phone call that he wanted to do the pilot. And so, don't forget the lyrics begins. In fact, in the room, he said to me, when can you start? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, when can we start this? I said, Mike, I was in the bagel business and the delicatessen <laughs> business. I woke up every night at midnight. There is nobody in this town that's going to beat me to work. Let's start right now. He goes, how about tomorrow? I go, tomorrow is perfect. Right? <laughs> and so that's how that happened. And then once we started to make the, the pilot and we got together and we did all that, he started to see what the show was. Oh, he came to me. I went to him and I said, listen, I haven't done a lot of these shows. I have to be honest with you. I feel like I need an executive producer that's done game shows, that's done music, that's done all of those things. And he said, well, thank you for being honest. I said, I'll take even a little less money. Which is very rare for someone to do because normally they're trying to get as much money out of the deal as they possibly can because a lot of times these, like I said, you're being squeezed in all different directions and you don't really have a chance to do what you want to do. And for somebody to come out and say that and admit to that is an amazing thing. And uh, so uh, who did you get to be your executive producer? Well, what happens is he, 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 we end up meeting with a couple of people. I didn't like any of them. He sends us a resume of somebody and says, meet with Brad Lockman. Now, I don't know if you know Brad. One of the great legendary producers has done stuff with Elvis and with, with Muhammad Ali. And can, will tell you stories. They're, they're, they're Barry Katz type stories where he goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, so I'm anyways, I'm in the room. So it's, they're long it's and me, boring and you go to me, sleep. It's me. It's, you know, Muhammad Ali. It's John Wayne. You're like, really, John Wayne? He goes, oh, yeah, let me tell you the story. It's craziness, right? But I look at his resume, and he had one game show. He had a music show many years ago, which was gigantic and huge, but he hadn't done enough stuff. So I said to the guys over at RDF, I said, you know, I don't think this is the right guy. So they called Mike, and they said, look, Jeff doesn't think it's the right guy. And he goes, no, I actually think it is. Let's get a phone call. So it's me on the phone with all the guys at RDF and Chris and everybody and Mike, Darnell. And Mike says, listen, I really think you should – try this guy. And I go, Mike, I got to be honest with you. I read resumes. This is my one shot. I want to make this so great for you. I love you. I love your enthusiasm, but I want to make it great. It just doesn't seem like this is the right guy. And now, he goes, if I were Mike Darnell, I would have said, look, you know, listen, trust me, just why don't you just do the pilot with him? If you don't like him, we can always change it out. That's afterwards. not Mike Darnell. <laughs> right? Okay. So Mike said to me, Mike said to me, you don't trust me. And I go, no, of course I do. Are you kidding me? I mean, you're the guy. He goes, if I'm the guy, you would truly trust me. And he goes, and if you trust me, you try it with Brad. And I just sighed. And he goes, I tell you what, Jeff, let me make it sweeter for you. If you go and you meet with Brad and you end up picking with him, I'll make, you end up picking Brad, I'll make it six episodes. And I go, Mike, I got to be honest. This could be the best resume I've ever seen in my entire life. I love this guy. <laughs> and I went and I met with Brad, and we became fast friends. And he would tell me all these great stories. And we ended up picking Brad. We got six episodes. The first episode. Which, again, before the pilot, you got six episodes. The pilot. Which, again, is something that's very, very rare. Yeah. All right. So take me through the uh, casting process. Tell me. The list of people, who was number one on your list to be the host, and where was Wayne Brady on that list? 
Wayne Brady, I went in pitching Wayne Brady as the host. You did. So I you pitched Wayne pitching. Brady as the host. Wayne Brady decides he doesn't want to do it. We meet with Ellen. We offer Ellen an exorbitant amount of cash. We go over to the Beverly Garland If you Hotel. offered Wayne Brady $100... How much money did you offer Ellen? I can't tell You're you. You're not telling them about the money. I'm just telling you. If you offered Wayne a hundred, what did you offer Ellen? A hundred thousand. Okay, it's like crazy, <laughs> right? Like crazy, like crazy money to do it. Crazy. Where anybody, anybody in the world would go. <laughs> Wait, that's per episode, and you got to remember when you're doing game shows, you shoot four in a day. So in three days, done. Like so much money, like more money than anybody had ever made. I never heard a quote like that. And at that time, you know. All these guys were making more and more money hosting, and it was crazy, right? So, so she gets this offer, and she says to me, "Look, I got to tell you, Jeff, I love this show. I think it's fantastic, but I've got my show, and this is like way too much work. I don't want to. Who wants to spend the whole day? Like, I don't need to do this or want to do this." So she decides not to. And do another it. thing you should know if you're a comedian that's that's that uh, I'll share with anyone out there who's doing comedy or is bigger in the business is that. If you host a game show, the history of the world in comedy is against you because there's only one person that I know of that has hosted a game show and gone on to book significant acting jobs in television and film. Every other comedian who had any aspirations of being an actor who hosted a game show never booked a significant acting job that was successful again. Only one guy, Jay Moore, hosted a game show called Lip Service, hosted a reality show, which is double uh, as bad, last comic standing, but still people like Clint Eastwood were still giving him roles, and he worked with 13 Academy Award-winning actors and actresses. So when you're a comedian like Ellen, no matter how big the offer is, if you have aspirations of being an actor or an actress and you're doing it, you're not Whoopi Goldberg took ten million dollars to be the secret the the middle square in the Hollywood squares. Ten million dollars. All she did was four or five shows a day on a Monday, and she never booked a significant acting job again of any ilk, and she had won an Academy Award. And now she's hosting The View. Howie Mandel was an actor, started hosting things, has never booked a significant acting job again. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great Howie Mandel story really quick. He's a personal friend sure. of mine. So his story on this is he gets the call to do uh, Deal or No Deal. Yes, and he was like number 13 or 17 on like the list. way down the list, yes. right? After Arsenio and all these other people and people had tried out and everything and they decide they want him to do it and they give him a call. And he does not want to do it. He feels like it's just the end of his career if he does that. So his wife says to him, are you kidding me? This is a great opportunity. Why do you not want to do it? He goes, honey, are you kidding me? This could end my career. And she goes, what career? <laughs> and he ended up taking it. And the rest is history. And although he hasn't booked movies, he's done pretty well for himself after Deal or No Deal. Oh, right? yeah. Been, no, like his, his career look, is totally revived look, from Look, Louis right? Anderson was acting and everything. He did Family Feud. He made $6 million for Family Feud. And he never booked a significant acting job again. It's yep. just the way the world works. I don't know why it is, but it's the way it works. So... To get back to the Wayne Brady story, Wayne Brady had passed, and then Ellen passes, and you know, 
sometimes your show, you need the right host. You need that right person. I really felt like Wayne was the right person, and so did Mike Darnell. Mike reached back out to Wayne, and Wayne's representative was Stacy Mark. He came down to this- Relationships. Big, he came back down to this big run-through, which I didn't know that Stacy Mark was his agent. I had no idea. They came. They were at the restaurant at the hotel. We had this big room set up, and we're ready for them to come in. And they tell me Wayne Brady's in there, so I'm like, okay, let me go in and say hello. I walk inside to say hello, and I see Stacy Mark, and she looks at me. I hadn't seen her in several years, ever since we did the Eddie Griffin thing. And she goes, "Jeff," and I go, "Hey, Stacy, what are you?" I go, "Oh, you represent Wayne." And she goes, "Yeah, what are you doing?" And I go, "This is my show." And she goes, "You're kidding me." And I said, no, because she only knew me from the Eddie Griffin concert. She doesn't know me from this. And she looked at Wayne. She goes, it's going to be great. You're going to love this. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. And Wayne came in and agreed to do it at that particular run through. And the rest is history. That's how it went down. Relationships, (laughs) trust, (laughs) and safety. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Let's wrap it up with a couple of questions. Uh, I'd love you to tell me your uh, biggest disappointment in show business and your proudest moment? Well, I think my proudest moment, um, my proudest moment was when, when Don't Forget the Lyrics was really, really, really a success because it comes out of your brain. And when you're a stand-up comedian and you're doing jokes, it's very immediate. You tell the joke, you get the laugh. You tell the joke, you get the laugh. When it's on television, it's not the same thing. So when you see it go on and then it comes back on the next episode and the ratings are bigger and the critics are talking about it and all of those things and it gives you, you know, I was sleeping on Jimmy Schubert, the comedian's couch before those things happened. I came here, I went through 350 grand of my own money to build my company, I hadn't sold the show. So I, I was really, so when that happened, it became so big for me. I moved my family here, I bought my parents a house, I, I was able to do a lot of those things. So I think still that is my very biggest accomplishment. Without telling you what the show is, my biggest disappointment is I created a show that was stolen from me and went on the air and is on the air to this moment. And in watching that show go on and have the success and knowing that it was mine and knowing that I couldn't do anything about it because you're not going to go sue the big network that's one of the networks that yeah, you can't do it. But in watching that happen and all of my friends were like, isn't that your show? Isn't that your thing? And your ego and your... It was so brutal and so hard, but I... I decided I wasn't going to go away. You know, in this town, a lot of people come to this town. And if something happens like that, you go away. You go, that's a brutal thing. You get knocked out like that. And it's a lot of money and a lot of ego and a lot of tough times. It's very, very hard. So for me, that was my biggest disappointment. But probably what pushed me into going, I will not stop until I have some level of success um, and keep swinging away. And, you know. Right now, I still feel like, you know, I've sold some shows. I've had some successes, you know. Don't forget the lyrics was in 77 countries, right? I mean, like, big, right? You go, but still not anywhere to what the expectations, which was what, how we began at the very beginning of this whole conversation. But things like that, they drive you. So even though it was my biggest disappointment, I think it was also my biggest motivation um, in seeing somebody else have your idea on TV, but you reap no reward, you get no credit, there's nothing there, and it just kind of goes away. And so that was really a heartbreaker. And you have to go into that network and pitch more shows every month or two months knowing 
that what they did to you, but you can't let them know that it got to you. You can't even let them know that you really even know or feel any animosity about it because you can't bring that kind of tension into the room. And the network might not really be a part of that. It might just be the production company. It might be like you don't know where the line is drawn, how it happened. And a lot of times in this town, you know, you go, there's there's similar thinking in certain things, but not in this particular case. It wasn't the case. But, you know, you you have to be able to suck it up and go, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to, but I'm going to like, like if you're a stand up and you get a joke stolen, you go, okay, if I only have so many jokes and one gets stolen, then who knows who did it. But if you keep writing new and you keep coming out with new material, nobody can stop you. So it's so fascinating. You said that I remember when Louis CK accused uh, Dane Cook of taking about 90, 90 seconds of material from him. And I remember calling Louis and I said, Louis, um, you know, if, if if Dane Cook needs uh, your itchy asshole bit to make it in this business, then we're all in trouble. And that's a great motivating factor that happened to you, and it's yeah. a, a very inspirational story. Lastly, what advice do you have for young comedians who are starting somewhere in the world on their path and and what do they need to do to make their mark in the business and also... Secondly, what advice do you have for young executives that are starting, that are trying to go through and move the needle in this business, create shows, sell shows, get stuff on the air, knowing what you've gone through? For young comedians, I would say be true to yourself. Do the material that you feel strongly about. Find an angle, a voice, find something and do the hard work. Do not shortcut in any way. It's too easy. Make a job out of it. Work every single day on honing it. Tape yourself. Do all the things that I talked about earlier that I really feel like those are the things that you do and you have to continue to take good and make it great, make great spectacular, and then be able to throw spectacular away. Be able to take your opening bit and your closing bit and be able to throw that away and then make your whole act an opening and closing bit where you're like one chunk after another, it's gush, it's gush, and never, ever, ever rest on your laurels. You go up and that chunk is the greatest chunk ever. You go home and you're thinking at night, how do I make it better? How do I make it funnier? What can I do to make it more animated? How can I put a tag onto it? Get other people around you. Get other comedians to help write stuff for you. Don't think you can do it. Like have do all those things, right? For executives trying to make it in this business, what I will tell you is this. I told you before I've never been anything but an executive producer in this town, and everybody makes their own marks. When I came to this town, everybody wanted to tell me the rules of this town. I stuck by none of them. I'm not saying that everybody can do what I did, but what I'm saying is everybody can make their own personal mark, but it really does come down to don't think there are any shortcuts. Don't think it's easy. I never look at it like that. What I did was... I know what I'm very good at, and I also know where my weaknesses are. And it's more important for me to understand my weaknesses than my strengths because my strengths are easy. So I surround myself with the very best people. You know, I'm a high school dropout, right? So a long time ago, my grandfather told me, he said, if you didn't go to Harvard, then surround yourself with people that did. 
not meaning specifically Harvard, but if you don't know something, surround yourself with the very best people. You look at a Super Bowl team and they go to the Super Bowl because they got the best blockers and the best runners and that everybody's got a specific thing. When I go to do a show, I get the best director. I get the best producers. I don't care that everybody's better than me and that everybody has more experience than me because they're going to take me to the end zone, right? So what I would say is, is surround yourself with the best people. Do not shortcut and ultimately build yourself a blueprint for your life. The same as you would do with a house. You say, I'm here. This is where I want to be. What are the things I need to do to get successful? You wouldn't go out and build a house and go, hey, just send some electricians in and stuff. You build an actual blueprint, right? And you do that same thing for your life and for your career, and at least you have a direction of where you're heading, and that could always change, but this way at least you have it. And that that's the advice I would do, and I would say you should really have an understanding of what you're passionate about and what you really want to do and, and that you're heading in that direction because sometimes you go, I really want to be a sports agent, and you get there and you go, this is crazy. What the fuck am I doing? I need to do something else that's my advice fantastic man you are incredible just incredible i just uh, I, I i think that our audience is going to love what you have to say and i can honestly say as we started you have exceeded all of my expectations <laughs> so thank you very thank much you. for well, you had low expectations for me <laughs> <laughs> well this has been another episode of industry standard uh if you like the show uh, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> they say it's the glory, I'll scream your name, put you on shoulder. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.